Hello everyone and welcome to our very first episode with a guest speaker. And straight away we have a high profile guest with us. I'm talking about Mr. Dick Moore. Mr. Moore has dedicated a great part of his life to visiting schools, universities and organizations all around the world in order to help raise awareness for young people's mental health. For those of you that don't know Mr. Moore, I highly recommend that you find his TEDx talk on YouTube. He also works closely with the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust. And in a short while, Mr. Moore will tell us a little bit more about himself. Now, a quick disclaimer before we start. Mr. Moore and I had a conversation over Skype, and let's just say the internet connection wasn't the best. So this did affect the quality of the audio somewhat. You all know what Skype's like, so I'd ask you all to bear that in mind when you listen. My apologies to you personally, Mr. Moore. I did all I could while editing, but a bad connection is a bad connection at the end of the day. But thanks again for coming on. I really do appreciate it. All this being said, we did have a very interesting conversation that served as a great place to truly start off our podcast. And at the end of the day, you're here for the content and the substance of our conversations. So all I ask is that you give me this one in terms of audio quality and have a listen to what I think was a really interesting conversation. So without further ado, here we go. Okay. Right. Okay. So, what well, uh, to start off with? You could just uh, give our listeners a little bit of a uh, background information about yourself, how you came to where you are currently working with uh, young children and uh, also young men's uh, and women's mental health. Okay. Um, I was um, I was an English teacher once upon a time. I come from a very frankly very privileged middle class very privileged background okay. um, I've had um, um, a very happy family very happy upbringing um, and uh, um, I've had uh, four children of my own uh, I was a teacher English teacher rugby coach um, and uh, for the last uh, well for 23 years I was uh, a head teacher okay. uh, a co-ed uh, a school and um, I took early retirement from that eight years ago uh, became a house husband, which was uh, great fun, and um, and then the third of my four children, Barney, took his own life in September 2011, um, and that sort of inevitably triggered a uh, chance for all of us to sort of look at what we were going to do and how we were going to cope and all that sort of stuff, and um, and here we are. Here we are indeed. So eight years now, you've been dedicated to uh, the the cause of uh, young men, young young people's mental health. Is that correct? Well, well Barney died in September two thousand and eleven. Um, I then went and did a mental health first aid course in something like May two thousand and twelve. Yes. Um, yes. I volunteered to help the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust by stuffing envelopes or whatever mm-hmm. and the combination of me connecting with the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust and uh, the mental health first aid made me think well this is something I could perhaps use so I became an instructor in the mental health first aid and I began to do some talks for the for the trust um, and that is now so that was what uh, six seven nearly seven years ago um, and that is accelerated uh, so that I'm now doing about 10 talks a week um, from Sunderland to Seoul and Toxta to Tokyo, wherever anybody wants me. Wow, so you're literally traveling all over the world to 
Yeah, yeah, and it's not just schools, and uh, increasingly it's to businesses who are concerned, obviously, about their the mental health of their employees and, of course, their employees' children. Um, so although my focus uh, and my, I guess, my experience is of um, of school-age children and, um, and university-age young people, um, I don't have any clinical or um, academic grounding yeah. to my passion for the subject. Okay. So... Uh Plenty of experience over the last eight years, nonetheless, I'm sure. I, I wanted to ask, uh, getting quite stuck in uh, and bringing it back to the United Kingdom for a moment, uh, there is, I think I'm right in saying, quite an epidemic in young men's uh, su suicide in society today. What do you think bring, brings that about? Why men? Why, why men so overwhelmingly? It's an interesting term, epidemic. It's certainly a term I've used in terms of young people's mental health generally. Yes. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's right to talk about an epidemic. I mean, I've got a very uh, close friend who thinks the term epidemic is, is wrong, and I'm not sure that it's correct in terms of, of suicide. But there are, as you'll be aware, some very interesting statistics that make... make uh, make rather uh, worrying reading if you happen to be a man. Um, uh, and, uh, for example, if um, three times more girls than boys self-harm, um, about three times more women than men get diagnosed with depression, um, three times more women than men attempt suicide. So all the suggestions would be, well, therefore, about three times more women than men complete suicide. But, in fact, that is where the whole thing uh, does a flip because 78% of men, certainly in 2015, 78% uh, of, of completed suicides are, are men. So there is something very significant in the way us men approach our mental health um, in the widest sense. I see. Uh, and maybe just a follow-up question to that. Do you think there is one specific cause uh, for this, or is it just uh, is it a, is, is it a bunch of problems in society or in, in the individual that brings it about that makes it? Wow, well, I think I think we could write, couldn't we? We could write volumes yeah. uh, on 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 why males might be more vulnerable to suicide than than, than women. Um, and I, I am absolutely certain that it is not just down to one thing. Yes. Um, you know, people talk about, for example, um, recently there's been lots of stuff, as you'll be aware, about social media in the news and how it has been linked to suicides. Mm. Now, linking it to suicides is one thing. Saying it is to blame the cause of a suicide is, is wrong, in, in my view. Uh, because suicide is such an immensely complicated uh, thing and no two suicides are the same. And, but I do, when it comes to, to men, I do have fairly strong views on it and that is that I think for millennia, we, blokes, have been, um, uh, have been responsible for sorting things out, looking after things, hunting, killing fighting, protecting, um, and just generally being, you know, just in charge and running things. Yeah. And, um, and I have this, uh, this silly little thing which I do sometimes on talks, and I say, look, imagine we are, imagine there are 10 of us in this room, 
and there were five blokes and five women. And we imagine that our room is now our cave, and we are 10,000 years ago. And we're sitting around our campfire, and um, the venison is grilling away over the fire. Us blokes, you and me, Thomas, we've been out, we've been out hunting today. We've had a good day because we've got the venison. And, uh, of course, we're very appreciative of the women for looking after the kids and doing the cooking. Um, and now we're here. Uh, I'm the chief, Thomas. That's what I want to make clear to you. I'm the chief. I've got the biggest club. I've got the biggest bear skin. And I'm having first dibs on this venison here. Yeah. I do have a slight worry in the back of my mind, and that is that that you want to be chief. Mm. Now, I know, Thomas, that you are looking out for one moment of vulnerability in me, one moment that you perceive as a weakness, and then you're going to knock me over the head, lob my body in the ravine and take over. However, <laughs> bad news for you, Thomas, is I know that's what you're thinking. Mm. And therefore, the first moment of weakness that you show... I'm sorry, but you're dead. Because yeah. I don't want any threats to my my power. Now, I would say, uh, I, I, I question sometimes whether that is so very different today in offices and classrooms and, and families. And, but I, I, I still think that we blokes, or many of us, have this terror of being seen as vulnerable. Because we think that vulnerability equals weakness. Now, I know that vulnerability doesn't equal weakness. Mm. I know that I'm vulnerable and you're vulnerable and my wife's vulnerable. And everybody's vulnerable. Yeah. And the only thing that is weak about being vulnerable is not being able to ask for help or lean on somebody for support. And I think perhaps we only begin to learn that when we get old. And that that's what I would like to try and change. Sounds like a very worthy cause, and I, I couldn't agree more. It's funny how uh, you have one perception on the surface of what uh, weakness is and what we all men have, and I know I have as well, where uh, you don't want to show, as you mentioned, uh, any sort of vulnerability whatsoever. But then, as you rightly say, the real vulnerability, uh, sorry, the real weakness is not showing the vulnerability whatsoever and let it sort of be pent up inside you. And, yep. uh, and then, then explode in one way or another. Uh, I, think, I think that's why um, it's certainly, until recently, a lot of female suicides or attempts have been, if I say half-hearted, that sounds uh, wrong, but have been gradual, have been small steps. Mm. Uh, uh, whereas us blokes, I think it's all about, no, I'm fine, I'm absolutely fine, mine's a pint football on Saturday, yeah, my wife's a bit unhappy, but me, oh no, I'm, I'm really cool and fine. And then it hits you. <laughs> then, then you think, actually, sod it, yeah. I'm out of here. That's tragic when that happens. I, I would have a follow-up on that, uh, because, you know, you mentioned the sort of very classic description of what a bloke is being all about or was in historic terms, uh, you know, sitting behind, sitting around the fire and the roles being designated quite clearly. And uh, it's been a trend, say, in the last 30 years or so, but it's been very palpable for me, even in the last 10, particularly so, that the roles of men and women in society seem to have changed somewhat, in my opinion. Uh, do, would you agree or would you disagree on that? Yeah. No, no, I, I, I completely agree. Although I'm not sure that I'm not sure that many of us men have 
absorb that change um, and, and, and conversely or, or in a different sort of angle the head of a very prestigious girls school said to me last summer that she was becoming increasingly worried about her highest achieving girls because now that they were aware that they can achieve anything that men can achieve in terms of careers that if they were really going to compete with those blokes that actually they couldn't afford to show any vulnerability now that for me would be a disaster be tragic because i think we're just beginning to learn from females that we can be vulnerable and successful and strong and resilient and resourceful and all that stuff that we like to think we are well that's interesting uh, so so the headmistress if i understand it correctly was was uh, scared that what that what would what would happen to the women they'd be They'd be uh, overpowered they'd become, in the workplace? They'd, or? Become, they'd become like us. Oh, I see. So the fear is becoming more male. <laughs> well, the th fear is that females, in that one way, would become less able to be emotionally open and, uh, and literate. Yes. Because they might be seen as being... Well, I mean, it, it goes on today. Oh, she's only a woman, or oh, she must have a period. Oh, you know, she's she's a bit being a bit emotional, as if as if that's what that's what being female is. Um, and if you or I were to be, you know, to be struggling in some way or other, people wouldn't say, "Oh, well, he's only a bloke," and so that's understandable. Yeah. And we we need to learn that the most, you know, some 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 women, and of course some men, can be emotionally open and all the things that we really want to be as successful you know human beings absolutely uh, so do you think the way forward because I, I see a sort of fork in the road two ways this can go uh, one of which would be that which some people seem to take uh, sort of going back to their how should I say it? The, their role uh, as a man or as a woman, even in an even more extreme way, being extra female or extra male in their in their uh, in the way they act, in the way they behave, or the others turn, shall we say, sort of androgynous almost, where the, where there's very little, where they don't be, where they, they don't really behave male or female. They just <laughs> pick this sort of middle road of sorts. Well, that is a. That is a seriously tough question, and I can almost hear my wife saying, just be careful, don't say anything, remember you're on being recorded. And, um, but no, I don't think it's either of those, he says, being safe. Um, I certainly don't think we can turn the, the clock back. Um, women wouldn't let us turn the clock back, even if we wanted to. <coughs> we are where we are. But I also think that there is absolutely nothing wrong with being a bloke. Yeah. There's nothing wrong. I sometimes ask women, you know, whether they enjoy being feminine. And they look at me, and the next question I come up with is, I said, okay, so what do I mean by that? What is femininity? What is masculinity? Yeah. Um, and, of course, what I'm after is that us blokes, you know, I like going to the pub and drinking beer and talking about rugby and being a bit loud and mm. full of myself mm. and funny. And, um, and I think, conversely, uh, some people like making themselves look look good and smart and smell nice and, 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 and 
okay, and use the word pretty and all that stuff, the, the traditional view of a very feminine woman. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, as long as one doesn't stereotype it yeah. and say, oh, that woman, she's a real, she's, a, she's, you know, she's, she's really pretty and lacy and you know, that's what's important about her. And we forget the fact that actually she's seriously tough and resourceful and resilient. And just as I wouldn't want to be seen anymore as that blokey bloke who's cool and everybody thinks he's fun. Yeah. Um, because that's not me. It's part of me. Yeah. And I'm perfectly happy with that part. But I'm also perfectly happy with this part that is more, um, I guess, vulnerable yeah. and more sensitive and more uh, gentle and more understanding. Yes. And I don't see those qualities being in any way um, inconsistent with being a bloke. Mm. And I feel that we all, whether we're women or except that we're different, because we are, we have different, we're, we're different biologically and physically, and, 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 um, and that's fine, but that doesn't, shouldn't define 100% who and what we are. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I totally agree, and I'd like to mention one thing which I think is a, some significance. I work in an international school at the moment myself, so I'm quite aware of the English educational system to some, some degree. And I've noticed an interesting trend that I didn't see when I was, say, when I'm talking about 10 or 12-year-olds that I'm going to mention that I work with at school now, uh, or 15-year-olds, I should say, more, uh, they don't seem to have as as uh, men or as you know young men, boys, depending on how you like to phrase it, such a problem with uh, expressing vulnerability as uh, as for instance when I was uh, when I was their age uh, some twelve years ago, uh, that was still very much taboo. Like you just didn't do that. Uh, uh, do you think there's a there's some sort of trend for the better in that respect? Uh, yeah, I, I, I a young teacher. A female teacher said to me when I asked um, a group of people, did they think that the level of stigma and discrimination attached to mental ill health was better, worse, about the same than it was 10 years ago? Yes. And this teacher said to me, he said, well, girls have always been supportive of one another, empathetic and, and emotionally reasonably, you know, to generalise, emotionally reasonably literate. He said, so therefore there's not much change there. But she said, boys, when it comes to their mates, their friends, are considerably more supportive and expressive and sensitive and helpful and empathetic than they used to be. But when it comes to themselves, she said she didn't think there was any difference. But, but she said mm -hmm. the boys still would find it very difficult, uh, in many cases, to ask for help for themselves. They'll ask for help with their mates. So that is much better. Than it used to be. That's fascinating that they do, in that case, recognise on some level that it's fine, but they don't incorporate that thought when it comes to themselves. Interesting. No, I mean, when I, when I, when I do talk, I did a talk um, day before yesterday, and um, in a co ed school, and normally I'll have afterwards, I don't know, four or five girls coming up and talking about their friends or their, you know, this that. Whereas on this occasion, I had four or five boys coming up. And I said to the teacher in charge, I said, that, that is amazing, the fact that boys are prepared to come up and say, yeah, that they've struggled a bit, but you know, this is what they found helpful. And, um, 
so that for me was a very a good day definitely I can, I can imagine I, I see a similar trend as well as I mentioned so maybe maybe there lies some hope in that there is a, I think, I think the sorry. fact that you're teaching in national school is interesting because um, the cultural differences are pretty profound I think oh, yes. certainly looking out in the far east you know when we think gosh we've got all sorts of difficulties here in the UK but I think those differences are often magnified Mm. Um, given the cultural differences in the Far East and, and, uh, and in Asia generally, um, where I don't think they're... I, mean, I think we have, the British have this stiff upper lip. Yes. Um, whereas out there, it's not a stiff upper lip, it is a sort of deep cultural um, thing. If you, if you, you know, Confucius, and if you show, if you, if you, if you say, I am, I am struggling with depression, then that is uh, bringing some degree of shame, not just on you, but on your family. Yes. So that is even even more difficult, arguably, to 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 get over. Yeah, agreed. As I can definitely see the cultural differences. But predominantly, we have we have uh, Russians or uh, Chinese students. Uh, we, we do have students from other bits of Asia and other bits of the world. But there is a big difference in the way. For instance, the Russian students, particularly once they hit puberty and they want to be, you know, big guys, yeah. they, they have, they will definitely not tell you anything's wrong if they're in a group, but they will find you when there's no one around and sort of say, oh, please, whatever you do, don't tell anyone. So, <laughs> so that's, that's an no. interesting. Yeah, thank you, one. Yeah. Uh, with that in mind, uh, I do find there to be a little bit of a paradox. Uh, in this, uh, on the one hand, we are speaking about uh, mental health uh, at all ages, but let's be specific to uh, young people's mental health much more than, say, 20 years ago. But at the same time, there seems to be so much more, or there seem to be so many more students uh, suffering, for, for instance, from depression or, or various uh, eating disorders or anxiety or panic attacks uh, than than before, as far as I'm aware, it seems to be a much more prevalent phenomenon. Uh, how do those two? How do those two things tally up? Well, um, I think that I mean I think back to when I was ten years old, so you know, mm. God, fifty years ago, and we used to have family lunch, Sunday lunch, mm. and we used to have our roast chicken, roast potatoes, vegetables, and we would all we had a bottle of water, a jug of water on the table. Now, when I do Sunday lunch here for my, my kids, um, if there isn't a bottle of Coca-Cola or wine, something's wrong. Right. So the expectations of what is normal have, have increased. Um, there is a very interesting um, little film clip by a guy called James Rhodes, a concert pianist, who talks about depression. It's a clip that's absolutely brilliant. I profoundly disagree with it. But what he says in it is just because we're not happy does not mean we're unhappy. And that I completely get. So I see the fact that the bar of what is reasonable to expect has risen dramatically. I see. And that if, as long as we're above that bar, we're fine. As long as we've got this and that and that and this, then we're fine. 
But if we don't, something is something is then wrong. Yes. I also think that if you put 10,000 extra police into Lewisham, oddly enough, the crime rate would go up. So we are looking more. There is more melodrama. There is more what somebody referred to me as contagion. In other words, we look at our friends, certainly with regards to self-harm, and we suddenly think, oh, my God, my football team has now lost seven games in a row. I'm so depressed. Or, or my girlfriend's done me. I am deeply depressed. Well... Actually, you're not. You're a bit bloody miserable and a bit fed up and a bit sad and a bit hacked off. Well, join the club. Now's the time you're going to need your mates and to lean on your family and to get out and go for a run. Or, um, but that's normal. And I think that acceptance that life is, is difficult sometimes. And if we're lucky, we get far more good days than bad days. And that, therefore, becoming aware of actually what depression is or anxiety a disorder or um, or an eating disorder becoming aware of that and not using the language incorrectly is incumbent upon all of us but particularly in education and if children aren't taught about these things I don't know about you, but nobody ever taught me how to deal with emotional pain. Same. Same. No, you know, nobody. Well, why didn't we? Why didn't we say, right? If you, if you, if you are, if you're really unhappy and you're not quite sure why, but you're pretty desperate, the one thing you can do is touch yourself. That might have an effect for a very little bit, and of course, it'll leave you scarred and disfigured. But there are hundreds of other things you can do. With a, with a more long-lasting, the same effect, you know, producing endorphins and making one feel Why aren't we teaching that stuff? That's what I want to know. That's a, that's a very good point, uh, which brings me uh, actually to the aspect of education that I wanted to discuss with you a little bit. Uh, you mentioned something in your TED talk, which I found uh, fascinating. You mentioned Ken Robinson. Uh, and you mentioned uh, him saying education has mined out the mind in the same way we have mined the earth for a particular commodity. Education will not serve us in the future. That really stuck in my mind, uh, this idea of education not serving us in the future. Could you expand upon that a little bit? What, what does that mean? Well, we don't know what the, um, what the future holds, of course. Um, but what we do know is that we no longer need instant, we, don't, we no longer need access to a vast brain store of knowledge because that's available to us. What we do need is to develop those skills that we're all aware of that are gonna, that are gonna serve us, you know, um, self-awareness, social awareness, conflict management, um, relationship skills, uh, all, that, all that stuff. And that should now be our prime focus in education and every single teacher. We still have um, curricula and syllabi that are filled with, with facts and knowledge. Um, and I can see how, to an extent, that's understandable. You know, we need to know what our, we need to know our tables and, you know, that sort of stuff. But if we cast our minds forward 25 years, if we cast our minds back 25 years, was what we learned back then really helpful today? Well, 
I mean, think technology, just huge change. But we still need those fundamental skills, that self-awareness, the relationship skills, the, the, the emotional management, the, you know, uh, cultural awareness, apart from anything else. I mean, God, do we not laugh need cultural awareness? And, um, and we're still not doing that. Schools will say, oh, yeah, we have our PSAG and we have our this and we have our outreach programs. But if you ask a teacher, are those things as important as your mathematics or your first 15? Then if you're, they're honest, they're going to say no. Because those schools that are, if you like, leaders, they feel that they are judged by their Oxbridge places or their this or their that, not by... How good, how, how well they're going to equip their students for 25 years' time. And I, I believe very strongly that a lot of our most academically prestigious schools, and particularly universities, are still paying a little more than lip service. Yes. And this, this, this bugs me. I can, and I agree. It, it bugs me too. And it brings me to a point which I definitely wanted to mention. You mentioned universities, but it doesn't necessarily have to be universities. On the one hand, I completely agree that the issue isn't being addressed as much as it should be. That's a given for me. On the other hand, I'd be fascinated to know what you think about these relatively newly formed, uh, for instance, safe spaces in university and uh, this idea of trigger warnings and, uh, and things like this, where, where uh, it seems like there's a generation of, of uh, young people growing up that isn't used to dealing at all with things that they might find negative or that they might emotionally find shocking or disturbing. What, what would you think about it? Or, or, or normal. Or normal, yes, exactly. Thank you. That's exactly my point, or normal. So, so, so I, I, um, I often talk about triggers, as you just mentioned, um, because we all face triggers. We all face things in our life that are, that are emotionally wonderful or emotionally awful. Yeah. And by the time we get to leave school, we've all been through stuff. Now, some families, including mine, some school, many, many schools, don't want their children to experience tough times, emotional pain, difficulties, challenges, because that's what we're there for, to protect. Yeah. And therefore, they then head off to university, uh, where legally they might be adults, but in terms of their brain development, they're still right in the middle of adolescence and arguably the air most vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And, and universities, still many universities, but certainly 10 years ago, most universities had no, had no mechanism to, to, to cope with that. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, two of my four children never met their university tutors. Now, my children were too lazy to get out and do something about it, but how come they got away with that? Um, because the pastoral, the pastoral care at universities, until recently, have been pretty dreadful. And therefore, universities need to be uh, expected to provide just those things you were talking about, but they also need to make sure they've got people who are prepared and willing and able to build direct connections with their students, because it is personal connection that can make things better, rather than any number of other things. But before that, schools have got to be able, and parents have got to be able to 
almost manufacture situations if necessary where somebody's going to fail, where the children are going to fail or find it difficult or have a broken relationship or, or, or whatever it happens to be, to realise that painful though that is and difficult though that is, if we take certain steps, we can get through it. Yeah. And that although today is bleak and miserable and I'm angry and tearful and deeply upset, tomorrow will probably be different. Because emotion is never permanent. And that is where I feel the uh, interface between schools and universities remains very poor. It makes me wonder uh, whether, for instance, with the formation of these safe spaces, I'll say it, uh, I'm not a fan of them at all. It makes me wonder why, how a good intention turned uh, or missed the mark, really. I think and tell me what you think about this, that it would be much better if universities taught these students some sort of emotional resilience rather than sheltering them from uh, any sort of anything that might disturb their peace and quiet. I think that, I think that, that the emotional resilience needs to get taught from one day old, possibly even younger. Um, and, and it is very largely in many, many early years um, settings and, and the early years foundation stage it is taught and yet it then gets squeezed out by other curriculum priorities so called um, and that really by the time they leave schools they should be they should have experienced they should have had that that teaching and that grounding and therefore universities should be investing I mean, I heard one university vice-chancellor talking about their investment in their well-being as if they had done the most wonderfully morally philanthropic thing in the world. Well, the amount of money they were talking about was of £1 million. Well, when you're charging 9000 per student, <laughs> actually that is nothing. No. If they were to invest in proper well-being, they would invest in people. People whose role was not just to run safe spaces and, 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 and medical centres for people who would actually be on the ground, not necessarily highly qualified counsellors and therapists, people who would be hopefully like your, your tutor in school. But I also know an awful lot of schools where the tutors will have no interest in anything else other than giving up themselves. Well, speaking from personal experience at university, I was also one of those that barely ever met my tutor unit twice. <laughs> yeah, you see, and, and, and that tutor will not have it on his job spec that his priority was to go and see Thomas at least every three or four weeks mm. to check out that he was okay and to build connection and earn his trust so that if ever he wasn't okay, he would know that there was a, 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 a an email he could call or a door he could knock on. Uh, I know basically everyone in my class when I was in my first two years at university studying psychology, the tutor actually quite actively avoided us. So I can, oh, I can appreciate and that. Says that. There is that ivory power nature of, yeah. of, of universities. Certainly the most, certainly Russell Group universities, and I know I'm generalising horribly, but I do think there is that sort of intellectual uh, ivory tower must still. And if you are unlucky enough to get a tutor 
who is actively involved in his own research, and that is his top priority or her top priority, I'm afraid that's not going to work. So I'm sure, I should say that I'm sure that there will be many tutors out there who will be fantastic pastoral guides and supports, but it should be a prerequisite rather than a, a bolt-on. So if I understand it correctly, uh, over and above uh, what is their classical role as a tutor in, in the classic understanding, they should be educated by uh, some professional in the, in the mental health industry to speak and listen to the students properly. Or would this yeah. be a desk? Yes. Okay. So to, build a connection, to build a connection with them yeah. before any of this stuff arrives, not just to be there as a safety net, build a connection before that point. There is also uh, this idea that I have uh, sort of goes hand in hand with, with I think it's fair to say uh, students, young, young children being more vulnerable or less resilient rather, let's put it that way, is uh, the amount of instant gratification that they can get these days. Uh, from uh, both the material world, instant Amazon next day delivery, or you know binging stuff on Netflix and Amazon Prime and God knows where, everything is a click of a button away, and you don't really have to spend much time and effort getting something wonderful. No, absolutely right, and um, you know I think the important thing though is that my generation tends to find it very easy to demonise society as it is now with social media with instant you know amazon deliveries and, and yeah. we find it very easy oh it's all it's all you know that's what's going that's what's wrong with well if we demonize technology for mm -hmm. example then young people aren't going to listen to us because they're going to think we don't get it mm -hmm. and i believe that we should be saying this stuff is wonderful yeah um social media the best aid to communication for generations um, Amazon Prime, how amazing you can order something at 10 o'clock in the morning and have it back to it. I mean, that is fantastic. Is. But life is not all about that. And we need to make damn sure that sometimes actually that children can learn that sometimes the most satisfying things are the things that take you the longest time to achieve. But again, that has to be built in to education I, in its wider sense. I agree. Uh, I know from personal experience, uh, basically ever since I started my, my job in an international school three years ago, one of the greatest punishments you can give a child is to take away their phone. They can go absolutely ballistic. They can go mental because uh, not allowing them to check Instagram or check their Twitter feed or something, is, it's almost like we were taking away heroin or something from them. If they had a serious, severe addiction, which I suppose they do have, although it's a, it's a different sort of addiction. Well, I, was, I was telling a group the other day that um, I woke up a couple of weeks ago, uh, three o'clock in the morning, and I was saying that men of my generation need to get up and have a pee in the night. And <laughs> I came back to bed, sat on the edge of the bed, and I picked up my bloody phone. And I, I checked my messages. Well, I didn't have any messages because I don't do social media. Nobody's going to send me any messages. And I... I threw my phone down and I said, you don't own me. <laughs> and I said to these kids, I said, if I feel that my phone is that much of a magnet to me, 
God knows what it must be like to you. And all I said is that just don't let it define you. Use it, enjoy it, make the most of it. Uh, it's fantastic. But if you let it define you, rather than looking at somebody and, and talking to them and reading their body language, then I'm sorry, it's not going to be a happy future. Well, I, I know that when I walk around during my what's called break duty, so you know, between quarter to 11 to quarter past 11, make sure none of the kids are misbehaving when they put their break, they are all buried with their heads in their phones. All yeah. of them. I find maybe two in 30 minutes that I see without a phone in their hand. It's exceedingly yeah. rare. Yeah. I absolutely agree yeah. with that. It's, um, it's sad, but then if you walk around Wimbledon Common, where I live, you won't see any kids climbing trees. You won't see any kids riding their bikes. Uh, 50 years ago, I spent every moment of the weekend out on my bike on the common building caps. You don't see that anymore. Because, because people are worried that their children they might meet some dodgy characters, some people with paedophiliac intent. Therefore, they said, oh, no, you're too dangerous out of the common. You, you stay in your bedroom and play a nice game. I find this, I find this uh, fascinating, you know, it's a morbid sort of fascination. I also see it's completely died out as, as a thing. I remember as a kid, and it wasn't that long ago, it's 20 years ago, I couldn't be out long enough. You know, I, I, was, I would cry if I was called back home. Yeah. But, uh, these days, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that you can actually get reported for child abuse if you, or neglect of your child if you let out your little kid to play in front of your house. Right. Uh, like it's actually it's actually not allowed uh, that well, doesn't seem that that's, that's where the world has gone mad and, and I said earlier that my wife would be you know if she was around she would be <laughs> she would be saying oh you shouldn't have said that you shouldn't have said this you know because th there is too much political correctness mm. um, you know one of the things this is not really for now I guess but one of the things that fascinates me is that bullying is such a hot topic. It's a word I don't like very much. Um, but it's such a hot topic. And yet you then hear with all the Brexit debate and the abuse that's flying around to adults, well, it's perfectly reasonable to say somebody's a because that's freedom of speech. I would like to ask what happened to freedom of speech with children? What happened with freedom of speech with political correctness? Um, because actually I'm quite happy with with getting rid of a bit of freedom of speech to protect people's feelings and sensitivities, but you can't have it both ways. And I, you know, I, I, and that comes back to resilience as well. And we need a bit of, we need a bit of, of, of difficulty to build resilience. Definitely. Anyway, there we are. Well, I, I agree. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the probably newer people in my generation that don't exactly believe in, uh, in political correctness, as you say, there should be, you should be allowed to hear and say all sorts of things so that the society... So that society education is about, in my book, I would be, I would be absolutely qualified if anybody thought I was racist, um, um, homophobic, um, sexist, I would, I would hate that. And yet, I shouldn't have to go around being frightened about somebody might think that I was because I've made a joke about X. Yeah. It's, it's strange how when you uh, limit freedom of speech in one way or another, it, 
it changes completely the way people people think. And this brings me back to a point I wanted to mention before. There's also this really strange paradox between the amount of time children are told these days how incredibly valuable they are all the time. And yes, of course they are. This isn't. I'm not. I'm not arguing against that. But it is this constant affirmation, reaffirmation that whatever they do, they're you know pretty much perfect. And you would think that would build their self-esteem, but quite the opposite, especially once they enter the workplace, they lack any self-esteem whatsoever. It seems to be like an inverse sort of... Uh, I, 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 you know, I recently saw this. I, I, uh, I think that um, I would never describe them. You know, you hear so many parents describe their children as wonderful and sensitive. And, and, and uh, well, um, I think my children are wonderful, but they're not perfect. They're, no, they're, not, they're not excellent um, they're, 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 they're entirely normal they're like me they've got their things they're good at and their things they're not they're good at and times when they're nice their times they're not very nice mm. and, and that is that's normal but if we start saying everybody is excellent um, I can remember writing university entrance uh, references for young people years ago for, for, for American universities and being told I have to give them A's because otherwise they wouldn't be regarded as having the excellence that, and this was, and I said, well, I'm not going to give them A's. And uh, that being a problem. Right. Because everybody needs to be excellent. It makes me think, what was the point of, of you grading them in the first place when asking them if, if all you were supposed to give them his A's in the first place? Exactly, exactly. Yes. Actually, with that in mind, because you mentioned US universities, it made me think of, how diverse uh, the crowd is, how different the situation is in different parts of the world, because you mentioned you travel quite a bit. Are there places in the world where students are, you would say, on the whole, more resilient and sort of capable of taking on information that they don't necessarily agree with? Uh, I, I don't know enough, because I haven't worked with university students abroad. I've just worked with schools. Um, there are, undoubtedly, as there are here, some schools that are exceptionally good at this stuff and too many that aren't. That's how I would say. There's one in Singapore that I visit, one in Bangkok that I just think are fantastic. But then there are some good initiatives going on here too. Could you mention some of these initiatives, uh, examples of how it's been done right? Um, okay, so this school in Singapore has got, um, um, well, start with there are some schools in the UK that are making sure that their staff gradually are all trained in mental health first aid. Uh, that it's everybody, they want everybody trained. Uh, there's a school in, in Singapore that's gone one step further and they want, um, they've got three of their trained, uh, so three of their staff were trained in suicide intervention skills. Now I wonder whether or not a British school would have the courage to train staff in that because they're basically saying yeah we, we we accept that some of our students might have suicidal thoughts well every school has students who might have suicidal thoughts but actually to be able to train staff to to be able to be on on hand to deal with that i think is a very very brave step and i hope it's what will happen more and more Hopefully so. Uh, well, there definitely seems to be more of a conversation in general about uh, mental health. Uh, with, with that in mind, 
obviously the, uh, the the sort of topic of this podcast isn't just uh, mental health, but to young men's mental health. Do you think that specifically that group is receiving enough attention these days? Or... Um, I no, I think that I think that girls are. Uh, I think there's various statistics that the the teenage girls are now one of the most vulnerable uh, groups. Um, I do think what we were talking about earlier about men and vulnerability and being able to say that to be able to be open about their emotions yeah. Yeah, it will be a problem. It will be a problem for many hundreds of years to come. And perhaps we have made massive strides in recent years, but we need to have more massive strides. Yes, definitely. Uh, I know from much speaking from people my age, which is roughly 26, uh, you know, 24, 26, uh, those, most of my friends would fall within that age uh, range, and they definitely have not been told at school or taught at school how to deal with mental health issues. In fact, it wasn't discussed at all when I was a, a student. Yeah. That's definitely something that's changing for the better. Uh, overall, uh, are you happy with the way uh, mental health is being discussed? Is it being discussed enough? Or, you know, it's being discussed enough, but there's uh, well, that's a horrific and um, important precursor to, um, to action. And there's a lot of platitudes and sound bites being thrown out there uh, and yet short-termism in politics and education seems to be something that is uh, that manages to get in the way of the actions necessary. In, uh, in an ideal world, for instance, at primary, secondary schools, if you could, what would be one thing that you would, that you would change in order to make men mental health of students better, not just the awareness of, as you say, speaking about it, but the, some sort of practical implementation, something that can be done. I would have, I would have, um, I would have uh, a major review of educational practice, what education is for, mm -hmm. what its purpose is, and um, I would uh, endeavour to get that involving a whole lot of a whole different range of people, so that school self-interest became secondary to welfare of students. Because at the minute, that isn't the case. Value is still by, reckoned by a lot of parents, governments, um, and 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 schools and teachers as being examination success league tables. Um, now, arguably. You don't get those without decent well-being. But the well-being, it used to be generally agreed that well-being should be the, the starter, the starting point, rather than a, you know, a, a, a desirable corollary to it all. So uh, this brings me to a question. So basically, if I understand you correctly, a, a big overhaul of education is long overdue. Because it's been... Yeah. Like a, like a highly respected think tank that politicians will buy into and say that the outcome of this think tank is something that we will, and it should involve people like Ken Roberts. Uh, it should involve head teachers from different sectors of education. It should involve uh, scientists, social scientists. It should involve a wide range of people 
but the target should be education for the 21st century and beyond. What should it look like? So the changes you mention are sort of, uh, you know, on a society level, uh, on, on, a, on a level of many individuals. Do you think that that is the primary way to go, or do you think that there is a case to be made for, shall we say, individualism, starting with the self and then letting that manifest in society? Yeah, but where does that come from? That comes from education and its wider sense. You know, I'm, I'm, I think that the whole concept of being who you want to be and difference and... And that has definitely taken steps forward. But, again, it needs to be... It, it's, I mean, it's a hugely complicated thing. I mean, we can go back to that freedom of speech and the expectations and what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. Is it reasonable to call somebody a, a, a fat kid um, if they're a fat kid? You know, I, as, as a head teacher, I would say you call somebody fat, as you call them fat. Actually, that's uh, that's uh, akin to bullying. Yeah. But somebody might say, "Well, it, I'm, I'm sure I'm allowed to say what I think." Yeah. Well, that's well, another thing. That's, uh, that's, who draws the line? You know, because uh, on, on the face of it, we do have the right to freedom of expression, but at the same time, we're all aware that there are simply some things that you do not say, and I think context isn't being discussed nearly enough in this. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, the trouble is with bullying, for example, I always felt that actually um, you didn't solve an issue where there was a relationship problem which had left somebody emotionally upset by just dealing with one half of the problem. You have to say, okay, how could you, how could you, and then you would get accused of, of um, you know, blaming the victim. Mm. And that, understandably, is not on. But on the other hand, unless you, unless we are taught that some of the things we do and say and the ways we act can antagonize people, yeah. well, we're taught that, we learn that. Yeah. We can't just go around antagonizing people. It's not safe apart from anything else. So we have to learn that. Um, and again, I think in lots of early years settings, they spend a lot of time on that. Mm. Harry, why did you hit Lucy? Because I was cross. What made you cross? Well, she broke my Lego model. Blah, blah, blah. How else could you have dealt with those feelings? How else could you have responded to Lucy? What else could you... And that goes on. But we stop when they get into year one. Because there's too much to fit in, because they've got to get ready for sacks. <laughs> yes, indeed. There's also the fact that, as far as I'm aware, most schools, definitely the school where I work, has pretty much zero tolerance on any sort of physical, what they would call bullying, but what might be also explained by, you know, just sort of a bit of a boisterous play between between two boys that you know are actually good friends, but if sometimes one of them gets a little bit more angry and hits the other one yeah. a little bit harder, that's immediately grounds for expulsion or, you know, no, being sent no. away. Exactly, and that very largely is sort of a fear of parental response and ultimately financial sanction. <laughs> um, but you're absolutely right. People know that these two are good friends and this friend has gone too far. Then that child 
should be sanctioned, but not called a bully. How many times is how many times in an office does somebody say something sarcastic to somebody else and upset them? Well, you know, workplace bullying is a horrible thing because it involves an imbalance of power. But the example you just gave of two friends having a fight and somebody just losing his rag a bit, yeah. they need to be talked to about relationships and, and you know, but not, you know, it shouldn't be immediately, oh my God, he's being bullied. There are cases, of course, where children are bullied insidiously, but they, if, if we tar every act of relationship hurt as bullying, then we're, we're going to lose sight of the whole thing. Also, sorry, you were going to say? I've got to finish before very long, Thomas. I'm expecting a call at half past two, and it's just no, past two. Of course, that's, that's absolutely fine. We can, we can finish up here. I think this is a good, good point to, to end our conversation. Uh, Mr. Moore, thank you very much for coming on the podcast again. You are our very first, uh, very first guest on the show. No, thank I'm, you. I'm honoured, Thomas. I'm honoured. Really? Thank you very much for having me, and, and good luck with uh, all you're doing. Thank you. Well, you know, with your help uh, today, and I'm sure it'll all, all come right. <laughs> well, I hope I've managed to get some, you know, provoke some controversy for you. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Moore, thank you again. You take care. You too. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our very first guest speaker. Now, remember, this is very much a reciprocal deal, so I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on the show. If you do have any, please write into manbasedpodcast at gmail.com and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. That's all for today, folks, so thanks for listening. Until next time, have a good one.